0: Hey there, Mark Ryder, NFP's Head of Innovation here. Before you get started with the Compliance Corner podcast, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we'll be launching in the upcoming weeks entitled Innovation Conversations. Innovation Conversations will be interviews with leaders of the various startups we are sourcing through NFP's Innovation Lab and will give you a great opportunity to hear from true game changers. Be on the lookout for more information in the weeks to come. Now, back to your regularly scheduled program. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with Suzanne Spradley. We are attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance Team, and we're on this podcast to break down some of the interesting and sometimes complex issues relating to group health plans and employers and their compliance uh, with federal and state rules. Today, we are going to tackle an interesting topic. It's called medical tourism. And we're going to hit on some of its ramifications or issues when it comes to employers, specifically offering this benefit. Suzanne, let's start very high level here. What do we mean when we're saying that term medical tourism?
1: So generally, when people
0: think about medical
1: tourism, they're thinking about traveling to another country for medical or surgical procedures. Um, In fact, that term has been also used to just travel to a different location in the U.S., but today we are going to primarily focus on foreign travel because obviously that raises more issues um, for an employer. And so what is the reason why, you know, individuals are doing that? It's, it's obviously because the cost of healthcare care in the U.S. has risen quite dramatically and we can find quality and less costly procedures in other countries. And in fact, many of the doctors that are in other countries have actually um, been trained in the U.S. or in Europe. And so they're, they've proven to be excellent uh, physicians as well as the technology has advanced in other countries as well. So when we talk about it for Americans or for Europeans, what we typically see are Americans traveling, for example, to Mexico, Costa Rica, India, Thailand is a big area, Brazil, Malaysia, Dominican Republic, and, and actually South Korea is is becoming a A strong uh, place to go for medical tourism as well. The reason why an employer would be interested is one, they'd have to be self-insured to have such a concern over the cost, obviously. Um, And then secondly, because the savings can be quite dramatic. So uh, we have seen, for example, in some cases, a procedure cost as much as 85% less in a foreign country, even including the travel cost.
0: Wow, 85%. I mean, that's enough to... Uh, perk up anybody's ears, especially an employer trying to save money with their group health plan. Um, You mentioned travel costs. um, That's included. Is what you're saying, the employer would be paying for the travel for this employee to go somewhere else?
1: Well, it it depends on the group health plan. I imagine any employer that's putting that out there um, as a benefit is going to have to include the travel cost, for one. I mean, that's typically what we've seen, but you have to provide some type of incentive for an employee to want to travel to another country Mm -hmm. to get that medical care or that surgical procedure. So that would typically include the travel itself, so an airplane ride the cost of an airplane, the meals, the hotel expenses that could be before or after a procedure that's done in a hospital, Um, even sometimes a companion, because if you think about it, some of these these procedures could be done for children, so they'd need their parent to go with them. It could be a sick individual that just has to have someone traveling with them as well. So um, we've even seen some plans offer a financial
0: incentive.
1: Uh, in order to incent these employees to to choose that option over, a more costly one in the U.S.
0: All right. So if I'm willing to go to Thailand or somewhere else, you give me $500, $1,000 on top of all my travel expenses to get me to do it, still saves money for the employer. Right. So it could potentially be uh, good for both. But that does lead to my next question. I have a bit of a tax background. Right. Um, what's the thinking on how these benefits are taxed? So your tax hairs went up, huh? When yeah. When I said that. <laughs>
1: So it's, it's, some of it, I have to say, is not entirely clear. And, of course, we always say work with your CPA. We, we are not CPAs, um, yeah. although Chase does have a background with the IRS. Um, but in order generally, when you think of how do you deduct medical expenses, the expense must qualify as a medical expense under mm-hmm. 213 uh, rather than as some vacation expense, of course. So it must be incurred for the diagnosis, the treatment, cure, or prevention of a mental or physical illness or in, injury. So any type of, of expense than a group health plan would pay here in the U.S. for a certain procedure would typically be covered, even if it was in a foreign country. Um, so that would be, of course, the hospital fees, the physician fees, nursing costs, um, equipment costs, and, and uh, other items related to that. Where it gets a bit more interesting is when you think about those travel costs. We mentioned the employer would pay for them to travel. Our travel cost um, also deductible or exempt for the employee. Um, so the code does recognize travel, transportation costs that are essential to medical care, such as when a parent has to travel with a covered child who needs medical care. So it seems like the tax benefit may, and again I say may because you need to check with your CPA, um, should include uh, transportation cost. But when you get to lodging, that can be a little bit stickier. The, the code is going to restrict that tax, tax exemption only when the lodging is essential for medical care. And the medical care, it says, should be provided by a physician um, in a licensed hospital. And and the lodging cannot be lavish, and there can be no significant element of personal pleasure. So there's a few more hoops to jump through in order for the lodging to be considered uh, tax-exempt. So again, work with your CPA on that. Um, And then we, we mentioned the financial incentive, and of course, that would be considered cash. Anytime you give cash to an employee, that would definitely be taxable. Right. Now, one of the, the more interesting things I, I will mention has to do with uh, pharmaceuticals. And we'll delve into this in a bit. But when you look at the taxation of pharmaceuticals, I've read different things. Um, so in, in one instance, I read that it must be prescribed by a U.S. physician. In that case, the pharmaceutical costs would not be covered. In uh, another CPA document, I read that it actually would be covered as long as the uh, prescribed meds were uh, actually utilized in the foreign country. However, if you bought any extra supply and brought them back into the U.S.,
0: those would not be tax exempt. Right. So, prescription drugs does introduce a new wrinkle here. Um, what if a person has provided drugs in a foreign country related to their surgical procedure, and they want to bring that that drug or those drugs back into the United States? Uh, particularly in a situation where those drugs are really required for medical care post-op. Are there any issues with transporting drugs back into our country?
1: Yeah, this is a hot topic and it could be really a podcast in itself. Mm -hmm. But if you think of just the baseline law, uh, if you look even on the FDA's website, they say it is illegal for individuals to import drugs into the U.S. for personal use. Mm -hmm. So the reason being is because drugs in other countries um, that are available for purchase often haven't been approved by the FDA. And, of course, the FDA is most concerned with the safety and efficacy of of drugs that are going to be utilized by citizens in the U.S. And there's actually a federal act. It's called the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And that is the act that prohibits individuals from importing any prescription drug that has not been approved by the FDA here in this country. So, for example, one of the hot topics is Canada, is trying to import drugs from Canada because many drugs are much less expensive in Canada. But if a drug is approved by Health Canada, which is FDA's counterpart in Canada, um, but has not been approved by the FDA here, it's considered illegal to bring it back into this country. That's just one example.
0: Right. So... Very interesting questions. This last week I was reading, I am a University of Utah graduate, so I I check in with the Utah News occasionally. In the Salt Lake Tribune, there was an article talking about a company that was paying for essentially what seemed to be prescription drug tourism. Can you tell us a little bit more about that situation?
1: Yeah, that's really going to be interesting to watch. They call it Pharmacy Tourism Program, and it's being offered by the PEHP which is the medical insurance provider for Utah's public employees, basically Mm -hmm. a self-insured plan for the public employees in Utah. Um, And any member of this plan uh, that needs one of uh, 13 high-cost drugs that have been approved by the plan uh, can enter into this pharmacy tourism program. And and that program flies the individual into San Diego, drives them across the border into Mexico, Mm -hmm. um, brings them directly to this high-end pharmacy in Tijuana for them to pick up their medications. And that customers are only allowed to fill 90 days' worth of prescriptions, and then they're flown back. So they do have to go back and forth four times a year if it's an ongoing medication. But their hope is um, that these trips to Tijuana will seem kind of like a free vacation, obviously, mm-hmm. to their employees. And they're hoping that <laughs> you know, that, that will incent them to go. And then they're also giving them $500 as another incentive to make the trip. So just for an example of what kind of savings they're looking at, if you look at Avanac's. Which is in the U.S. the you know an expensive drug and it costs over twenty thousand dollars for a three month supply, in Tijuana it cost only about sixty six hundred dollars in a clinic.
0: So significant savings there. Um, I have done that border cross before from San Diego to Tijuana. It's interesting, um, but you, what you're <laughs> saying is there, How are they? How are they able to do this legally? If you're talking about drugs crossing the border here, the FDA has this guidance out there saying that generally this is not okay, is this a legal arrangement now or do we know?
1: Well, it's it's going to be interesting to see. What they are likely basing this on when they mention that there, it can only be limited to a 90-day supply is some FDA guidance that's been put out there, and it's kind of a non-enforcement policy or a limited light enforcement policy, so it's not really an exclusion from the law. Um, the guidance is found in the Regulation Procedure Manual, and it's entitled Coverage of Personal Importations. And it sets forth, again, kind of their enforcement priorities and says that personal importation of an unapproved drug is certainly at a higher level than than if they are importing something that's already approved by the FDA. And then, of course, their enforcement priorities look to those commercial markets or fraudulent markets that that uh, they want to really focus on. So when they look at just if someone's importing a drug that is approved by the FDA and it's only for personal use, not for wholesaling, they put that lower on their enforcement priority. Hmm. Um, And then this policy goes on to explain really some of the facts and circumstances that they'll look to when deciding whether they'll allow somebody back into the U.S. with their drug and then look at whether the drug is for use for a serious condition for which effective treatment is not available in the U.S. Now, in, in this case, obviously, when we talked about the Utah employees, it likely would be available in the U.S. But they want to make sure that there's no commercialization or promotion of the drug, um, that the drug is considered not to represent an unreasonable risk. Um, the individual importing the drug verifies in writing that it's for their own use, and they can provide conduct information for the doctor that prescribed it. And then, again, this is where I think they're coming from. They say not more than a three-month supply of the drug is imported. Right. So I'm sure Utah's relying on this guidance when they're designing what this program would look like.
0: Right. It fits right into that three-month sort of exception there.
1: Right. So so even though the guidance recognized that this is kind of a facts and circumstances decision, and it's really at the discretion of who's allowing them back into the country on that day, it's still considered illegal. And so that's where you want to be a a bit more careful. And certainly when you get into the involvement of an employer who's uh, now in the mix of organizing it, it seems less like an individual bringing it in for their personal use and more like an organized program of importing drugs. That's where I would be concerned for the employer. So I'm really anxious to watch this Utah program and see if the FDA steps in and stops it. Right. Right. Something else to keep in mind though, Chase, that's going to be interesting to watch is we have seen different versions of bills um, that have been put forth with the U.S. House of Representatives to try to promote importation for personal use of various drugs, either whether it be from Canada or Mexico or some other country. And I think that topic will continue to come up as drug prices increase here in the U.S. So we'll watch for that as well.
0: Yeah. So a couple of interesting things that we'll just have to kind of wait and see. Watch how this Utah situation plays out, whether the Congress steps in and makes any changes that uh, might help with these programs. Um, lots of that has to do with drug safety. That's very important. Obviously, you want to make sure you're not getting in trouble with the FDA. But getting back to the employer side, what, what about quality of care in general in a foreign country? How can an employer really look into that? How do they know about it? Is it Quality of care? Are you getting any quality if you go overseas?
1: Yeah, I would. You know, that would be my concern. Either as an individual going into a foreign country um, where they don't speak English as well, or as an employer um, sending my employees into another country. But fortunately, the healthcare facilities are accredited. Okay. Many of them are accredited in other countries, and so. Um, They obtain a quality of care accreditation similarly to how the hospitals do here in the U.S. So the two primary trusted organizations would be the Accredited International Standards Organization, ISO, and the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, which we look to here in the U.S. They have a... Uh, international arm that's called the Joint Commission International. And so, again, you just look at the accreditation of the hospital. And then Mm -hmm. you can also look to the physicians and see where they're trained. And you'll find many of them are trained in major medical centers in the U.S. Um, You can also find that, for example, one of a prominent hospital in in the U.S., John Hopkins, has a branch in Singapore. So you might find some branches from U.S. hospitals um, in other foreign countries. So the number one factor, which is very interesting when you start to look at statistics and outcomes, when you're looking at quality measures, you look at um, outcomes predominantly. uh, And certain outcomes of certain procedures are definitely tied to the number of procedures being completed in a hospital. And in some cases, you find that there are some very high, um, high usage hospitals in foreign countries that significantly adjust the outcomes as compared to here in the U.S., um, and so that's really something to watch for. For example, in India, there's a famous hospital that does nearly 15,000 heart operations each year. And their death rate among patients um, during surgery is less than 1%. It's 0.8%. And that is less than half of most major hospitals in the U.S. Wow. So so when we talk about quality, there's certainly in certain circumstances Um, actually the quality is better in these other countries. Mm -hmm. You look at India, it's also one of the world's leading countries for biotechnology research and stem cell research. So I think often when we think of foreign countries, we think necessarily that how can they be as good as the U.S. healthcare? Mm -hmm. But in some cases, you'll find that it's better.
0: Right. So it's good for employers to know that there are agencies out there like ISO and this Joint Commission International. They're out there certifying essentially that there's a baseline of of uh, quality there going right. on in other countries. And then you have obviously these stats that you've pointed out. So those are some good reasons. Lower costs, pe- uh, possibly better health care in the uh, foreign country. What are the downsides to medical tourism for an employer plan?
1: Well, I mean, there's there are definitely some things to consider. For example, HIPAA. If we think of HIPAA, uh, no matter where the employee or participant is receiving Uh, medical services, you are still, the health plan is still um, bound by HIPAA, whereas when you're in a foreign country, they're not bound by HIPAA. So there could be some Mm -hmm. challenges there. You can also think of absenteeism. If someone has to travel to a foreign country, they have to recover there in order to be uh, well enough to travel back. They're going to be out of work longer than they would have if they had gotten the procedure done here in the U.S. Um, And then you also have to think about communication. Obviously, when they come back, there could be some complications post-op, And they'll need to have some way of communicating with their foreign doctor um, and then utilizing a doctor here in the U.S. So some type of coordination there. And for the patient, finally, there's, there's little recourse should something go wrong. In the U.S., we're, of course, used to the tort system and where we can sue a doctor, we can sue a hospital for negligence in the provision of care. But really, when you're getting your care in a foreign country, um, there is no legal recourse in that foreign country. So, if there's a problem, you're uh, you're really just going to um, self insure that problem. There's not an opportunity to get financial compensation, either to pay for additional treatment or, you know, to recoup for emotional distress or any other financial issue that could come up. Right, makes sense. So, really, this brings me to the concern of many employers that in the event that something does go wrong, um, they've sent an individual via their group health plan into a foreign country. There's now been some type of negligence in the care um, and that a participant now wants to sue and they turn to their employer saying that we relied on you employer and your recommendation to do this this type of uh, procedure in a foreign country. So is there increased liability for the employer by really instituting this benefit plan at all and then certainly if they were providing a financial incentive, there would be an even greater argument that they were doing so at the incentive of the employer. Um, and with this, again, we we ask that you work with outside counsel, which is common what we say, but it would be very wise for you to look at getting a release from individuals who choose medical tourism. Um, it could be valid or not valid in your state. It really depends on the facts and circumstances. But if you work with them um, and you and you have a release, at least you have some type of Um, some risk mitigation should there be something that arises.
0: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point there, um, talking about that recommendation. And when we talk about ERISA, these are obviously still group health plans and they're subject to ERISA. ERISA has two things that I think are important there. First, anybody participating in ERISA plan has the right to bring a suit against the plan itself. So when you're talking about an employee that had a bad experience, they may have uh, seeked that lawsuit right to sue the plan, which would obviously pull in the employer as the plan sponsor. And then secondly, employers have a fiduciary responsibility to operate the plan in a way that is in the best interest of participants. So those are two key points I think that you brought up there uh, under ERISA. Yeah,
1: and I, I will say that um, usually the the individuals when they're when they do obviously seek compensation from the plan, there's limited compensation that they can get under ERISA. Mm-hmm. So there's greater financial options, I'll put it, for an individual under state laws right. that have to do with negligence. But nonetheless, um, there is risk out there. The employer should try to mitigate that risk if they want to introduce um, certainly one of those plans.
0: Right. So from an administrative perspective, so let's say an employer wants to uh, look into this, are there vendors out there that will assist with setting up a medical tourism plan?
1: Yes, we can't really recommend any particular vendor. This is not one area that we've done due diligence on, as we often do on some various vendors. But uh, we will say that, again, along with the idea of ERISA fiduciary obligations. You should do due diligence on any medical tourism company that you're interested in utilizing, but they definitely can help coordinate that care. And there are some very good ones out there. Um, But again, let's get back to the idea of ERISA fiduciary obligations. They have the the fiduciary obligation, and when I say they, I mean the plan, to administer the plan prudently and in the best interest of the participants. So just lowering costs for the benefit of the plan but if it's at the expense of quality care, it would certainly you know, be deemed a fiduciary issue. Um, so employers should, again, wade into this, this ERISA waters, carefully utilizing
0: outside counsel. Right. Wise advice, Suzanne. One last question before we wrap here. Uh, do employers utilize medical tourism right here within the borders of the United States now?
1: Yes, I would say the focus now on traveling in the U.S. when we call talk about medical tourism is to what we call high-volume medical facilities. They are these centers of excellence, and they're going to be hospitals that you would think of and that you've regularly heard of. Um, but like a Cleveland Clinic, an MD Anderson Cancer Center, John Hopkins Hospital, the Mayo Clinic. But all of these, as we talked about earlier, are high-volume uh, procedure centers, and so they, they generally have lower complication rates. So for an employer, if they refer an employee to a center of excellence, uh, the idea is that they hope to have a reduction in medical complications, which it could be like a surgical reintervention, There could be longer recovery times if there are issues. And so by, by reducing those costs and allowing employees to return to work quicker, they're reducing their overall cost. So that's the idea between uh, around medical tourism here in the U.S. going to these centers of, of excellence. So um, some employers have also recognized that foreign travel is not always interesting for an, an employee. I mean, they've got, they've got travel times that's associated with it. There's language barriers. There's this liability uh, issue where they may not have recourse And so some patients just aren't interested, but they may be interested in just going to another state within the US. So it's kind of an easier sell for Mm -hmm. some employers um, than it is necessarily traveling to another country. So what does it look like here in the US? It's similarly, the the companies would offer to pay for travel expenses to these centers of excellence. um, And then that would include the travel. And if there's any hotel stay before or after the hospital stay, it would include that as well.
0: Right. Well, this has been very interesting, something that uh, we hear about sometimes, medical tourism, this idea of traveling to a different country or a different state within the U.S. to receive care. And I think the information you've shared today has been very helpful. So thank you for doing the research and getting us up to speed on this topic. And um, as we like to say on the podcast. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining